0: We like to think that those who kill will eventually be hunted down, caught and brought to justice. But as we know, this isn't always the case. Some serial killers evade capture for years or even decades, and some are never caught. It could be argued that most are never caught. Thankfully, there are those who are, but their victim count is heavily debated and considered much higher than what they are charged with. Will justice ever be served? This episode concludes our series on serial killers, this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number three. Amadeep Sadar. Bhagwam Par in India is not known for many things. Chances are you never heard of it. I know I hadn't before researching this episode – However, in 2007, this town would become forever known as home to India's youngest serial killer. Admadeep Sada was born in 1998 to an impoverished Indian couple. He grew up in Bhagwadpur, where life was not easy, as the area is heavily poverty-stricken. Although this family were no exception to this, Deep's father was employed as a labourer Giving the family the opportunity of stable housing and food, when Ahmad Deep turned seven years old, his mother gave birth to a little girl. This would be when Ahmad Deep's behavior took a sadistic turn. It is believed Ahmad Deep began killing about one year before turning himself in to the Indian police. It is believed that Ahmad Deep's first murder was that of his six-month-old baby cousin. Because of his young age, little is known about Deep and the killing of his young victims, but what is known is that Deep would sneak into the bedrooms of the tiny, fragile victims and strangle them to death. With his cousin's death, it is believed that Amadeep travelled to his uncle's home and visited the family like he normally would. As the family spoke, Deep then snuck off into the bedroom and looked down upon his cousin before deciding to kill him, his choice of murder being strangulation. When he returned to the room where his elders were speaking, he returned as if nothing had happened. After the death of his cousin, Deep turned his attention to his baby sister. No one really knows the motive behind why he did this. Some claims he was mentally ill. Others claim he murdered his sister due to the amount of attention she was receiving. Whatever the reason, he still went on to murder her in the same way he killed his cousin. Although two babies had now died in the family, suspicion was not raised and foul play was not believed, so the murders went unreported, many believing that poverty had reached the two vulnerable children. It was not until 2007 that Amadeep preyed on other families' children. One year later, in 2007, Deep ventured out and decided that instead of playing with the other children, he would seek out his next victim. Walking the streets, he entered the village primary school. Now in India, some of the primary schools offer respite to parents – Chan Devi had decided to leave her sleeping child Kashbu, so she could go home and do her household chores. Amar Deep had entered the school grounds and he had no reason to, but no one really paid him any attention because he was only eight years old, and just looked like any other child there that day. As he looked down at the sleeping baby, he decided again in that moment to take her from the school into a nearby field. Again, due to the baby sleeping there, there was no need to guard the door, so no one noticed Deep walk calmly out carrying the sleeping kashboo. Once he got to the field, he laid the baby in the grass and began smashing her face with a discarded brick he found nearby. Due to the isolation of the field, no one heard the terrifying screams of the tiny baby. When Deep was satisfied the baby was dead, he covered her with leaves and grass and he went home, as if nothing had happened. Later that evening, Kashbu's mother returned to collect her baby, and she was horrified to realise her baby was missing. Filled with fear, her family began searching every area surrounding the school. One relative searching the wasteland found Kashbu's body. Holding the baby in their arms, he walked to the police station. As the police walked through the village questioning people, they began to explain how they were wary of the young Amar Deep, how suspicious it was that two babies in the same family had died in strange circumstances. But because the family did not seem concerned, they were not obliged to report their concerns either. Quickly, Amar Deep was taken in for questioning and he immediately confessed to Kashbu's murder. And he didn't only confess, he provided a graphic and in-depth description on how he killed the baby. Quote, she was sleeping in the school. I took her a little away and killed her with a stone and buried her. Unquote. Soon after this, it was easy for the police to gain a confession from Amar about the death of his sister and cousin. His mother, though, was adamant that her son did not understand the difference between right and wrong but the police did not agree. They asked him outright if he knew what he was doing when he killed the other children. According to reports, Amar Deep just smiled and asked for a biscuit. The police decided that they had enough evidence and charged the eight-year-old with three counts of murder. Because of his age and his mother's insistence that he did not understand what he was doing, he was assessed by three psychologists. One doctor highlighted that he believed Amar Deep was suffering from conduct disorder. Another believed he was a sadist who found pleasure in injuring others. In the end, though, it seemed the diagnosis of the conduct disorder won out, and it was recommended that Amar Deep was treated with medication. However, due to poverty, his family could not afford this, and therefore Amar Deep remained untreated for the majority of his childhood. According to Indian law, Amar Deep could not be incarcerated, and it was concluded that he was too young to be punished, but he did need some form of treatment before he was allowed back on the streets. As a result, the court had no other option but to imprison Amar Deep for three years in a psychiatric facility. He was later placed in a remand home in the nearby town of Munga. As criminals under the age of 18 in India can legally be detained in a children's home. The reason we know this is because in 2015, when Amar Deep turned 18, he gained his full freedom back. It is most likely that Amar Deep is now living under a new identity somewhere in India. Ready to pop the question? Number 2. The Connecticut River Valley Killer. On September 24, 1978, 26-year-old Kathy Millican was visiting the wetlands reserve in New London, New Hampshire to do some bird watching. When she did not return that night, her family reported her disappearance. Kathy's body was found the next day, not far from where she was last seen taking pictures of birds – she had been raped and stabbed more than 20 times. The next alleged victim was 37-year-old Mary Elizabeth Critchie. She was last seen hitchhiking near Farmington, Massachusetts. She was heading to Waterbury, Vermont, but never made it there. Her body was found in a wooded area on August 9, 1981, in Unity, New Hampshire. Due to the level of decomposition the medical examiner could not determine cause of death. And because of the lack of cause of death, police could not know for certain if Mary Elizabeth was actually one of the Connecticut River Valley killer victims. Nevertheless, there were no further murders attributed to the Connecticut River Valley killer. Instead, another serial killer stalked the same area between 1979 and 1983 a man named Gary Lee Schieffer, who murdered three girls in Springfield, Vermont. He would be sentenced to 30 years to life in prison. In January 1984, the Connecticut River Valley killer started hunting again. On May 30, 1984, 17-year-old Bernice Courtmarch was hitchhiking from Claremont, New Hampshire, to Newport to visit her boyfriend Ian. Her skeletal remains were found two years later, on April 19, 1986, near Newport. Markings on her bones indicated that she had most likely been stabbed to death. On July 22, 1984, 26-year-old Ellen Fried was talking on a payphone outside of a store in Claremont. Her car was found a short time later, but her remains wouldn't be found for another year, until September 19th, 1985, near Sugar River in Vermont. This would not be far from where Benice's remains were found a year later. The medical examiner determined that Ellen had most likely been stabbed to death, and there was evidence that she had also been sexually assaulted. On the morning of July 10th, 1985, 27-year-old Eva Morse went to her job in Charleston, New Hampshire. But as soon as she got there, she was sick and she was sent home. Eva was last seen by a motorist who picked her up while she was hitchhiking. He dropped her off near Claremont. Loggers would find her skeletal remains 10 months later in Unit, New Hampshire. Her skull had markings from knife wounds. This led the medical examiner to list her cause of death due to fatal stabbing. On April 26, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore of Saxton River, New Hampshire was home alone. When her husband came home from work, he found her murdered in the kitchen. She had been stabbed over 30 times. After killing Linda, the Connecticut River Valley killer went dormant for the rest of the year. On January 10th, 1987, he would recommence his reign of terror again. On this day, 36-year-old Barbara Agnew was skiing in Stratton, Vermont, before driving towards her home in Norwich. Her frozen remains were found nearly two months later, near Heartland, Vermont. She had been stabbed multiple times in the neck and lower abdomen. There was at least one last attack that occurred on August 6, 1988. 22-year-old Jane Brodsky, who was seven months pregnant at the time, Jane was sitting in her car in a store parking lot in Keene, New Hampshire. A man approached her car, and without warning, he grabbed her and dragged her out of the car. When she fought back, the man pulled out a knife. When Jane asked why he was attacking her, he said, quote, You beat up my girlfriend, unquote. Jane begged for her life, saying she did no such thing that she didn't even know who his girlfriend was. The man replied, quote, Isn't this a Massachusetts car? Unquote. Jane said it wasn't, and she pointed to her license plate, which displayed New Hampshire tags. This confused the man, and he released his grasp. Jane thought he was about to walk away before he lunged at her, stabbing her in the stomach multiple times. Amazingly, despite being stabbed 27 times, both Jane and her baby survived. She gave birth two months later to a little girl, who did develop a mild case of cerebral palsy, but she was otherwise healthy. Jane described the car the man was driving as a jeep, and she could recall the first three characters of his license plate. She also could describe her attacker, and the sketch was widely circulated. But unfortunately, none of her information would lead to any arrests. Over the span of a decade, the Connecticut River Valley killer claimed the lives of at least six women, many of who were stabbed in the head, the neck and lower abdomen. There are several suspects in the case, but the prime suspect is Michael Niccolo. Niccolo had a history of violence and murder. When he served in the Vietnam War, he and seven other men were accused of killing 30 civilians. He was held in the stockades for six months, before the charges against him and the other men were dropped. Besides his alleged wartime atrocities, Niccolò was also an abusive husband. In 1988, his 22-year-old wife, Michelle Niccolò, had already left him several times but by November 1988, they were back together again. Then, without warning, Nicolo, Michelle and their two children disappeared. When Michelle's mother went to the family's home in December, she discovered the Christmas tree was set up. There were presents under the tree and there was food in the kitchen, but the family were nowhere to be found. Michelle's mother hired a private investigator to find the family. The investigator tracked Nicolo and the couple's two children to Florida, but Michelle was not with them. When the private investigator called Nicolo, he denied knowing Michelle before changing his story, claiming she had run off with a Colombian drug dealer. After the call, Nicolo and his new wife, Eileen, moved to Georgia. In November 2004, Nicolo and Eileen got into an argument and Niccolo ended up hitting Eileen with his car. She survived the assault and moved in with her sister in Florida. On New Year's Eve 2004, Niccolo went to Eileen's sister's home. Also staying at the house was Eileen's daughter, 22-year-old Tara Bowman. Niccolo and Eileen started arguing, and the police were called. When the police arrived at the home... Niccolo aimed a long barreled shotgun at them and closed the bedroom door with Eileen and Tara still in the room. The officers heard two shots, and they got out of the house until backup arrived. After a short standoff, Niccolo shot himself and he died at the scene. Eileen also died in the bedroom and her daughter was taken to the hospital, but sadly Tara also died a short time later. Michael Niccolo is considered a suspect in the Connecticut River Valley killings because when the murders occurred, he did not live far from the area where the women disappeared. He's also known to visit the area because his first wife, Michelle, who has never been found, had relatives that lived there. He also owned a jeep like Jane described seeing the men who attacked her get into. Besides being the prime suspect in the Connecticut River Valley killings, Niccolo is also considered a suspect in the Colonial Parkway murders. Between 1986 and 1989, four sets of couples were murdered or had disappeared. If this is the case, Michael Niccolo is potentially responsible for up to 18 murders in the United States, plus another 30 deaths in the Vietnam War. But unfortunately, there is no physical evidence connecting him to the Connecticut River Valley killings, and the case is currently cold. Number 1. Jack the Stripper A series of six unsolved murders occurred between February 2nd 1964 and February 16, 1965, which would become known as the Hammersmith Nude Murders, committed by the serial killer, Jack the Stripper. The victims were all sex workers and were found undressed in or near the River Thames. 30-year-old Hannah Talford was found close to the Hammersmith Bridge on February 2, 1964, by two brothers preparing for a weekend of sailing. Several of her teeth were missing and her underwear had been removed and forced down her throat. Her cause of death was determined to be strangulation. An autopsy showed that Hannah had been pregnant at the time of her murder. Hannah was reportedly last seen on Friday, January 24, 1964, at her home in the area of Notting Hill. She lived there with her boyfriend and three-year-old daughter, Linda. The second victim was found at 8.30am on April 8, 1964, only 300 yards from where Hannah was found. The victim was later identified as 26-year-old Irene Charlotte Lockwood. The area in which Irene was found was known by police to be where sex workers would take their clients. By now, the police had accepted that they had a serial killer on their hands and that they needed to locate the offender before he struck again. But on April 24th, 1964, 22-year-old Helen Catherine Bartholomew was found dead in her driveway in Brentford Middlesex. Again, her body was naked and four of her teeth were missing. During the autopsy, the medical examiner discovered that Helen had traces of spray paint and semen in her throat. The police then believed they had a breakthrough in the investigation when 54-year-old Kenneth Archibald, a local caretaker, walked into the local police station and confessed to being Jack the Stripper. This was just two days after the discovery of Helen. A six-day trial began on June 19th, 1964. But after all of this, a verdict of not guilty was reached and Archibald was released. 33-year-old Mary Fleming was the fourth victim of Jack the Stripper. Mary's body sat outside of a garage in a cul-de-sac in Chiswich. At first, Mary had been mistaken for a shop mannequin. Police then discovered that Mary had several teeth missing and that she also had spray paint and semen in her throat, a consistent feature in all of the murders. The next victim was 22-year-old Margaret McGowan. She was found slumped in a car, which was parked opposite the local tube station. Again, the police discovered the same paint and semen in her throat. Her front tooth also showed signs of being forcibly removed. The final victim was 27-year-old Bridie O'Hara. She was last seen alive on January eleventh, 1965. Her body had been dumped in some undergrowth in Acton, where it would be discovered on February sixteenth, 1965. Unlike the other victims, the autopsy determined that Bridie's body had been kept for some time, before being dumped in the location in which it was found. During the investigation, police did conclude that the spray paint found in the throats of some of the women were a match to that of a paint spraying shop located on the Heron factory estate. The semen in the throats also concluded that the women had died of choking while performing fellatio on the killer. The pathologist also determined that the removal of teeth could be a sign that the killer performed further fellatio once the women were dead. Through the investigation and mounting evidence, the police were able to reduce their list of suspects down to three. One of the suspects was a married security guard, but he suicided in June 1965 when the constant scrutiny from police and the media became too much. After his death, the police searched his home and found no evidence to suggest he was the killer. Another suspect was Tommy Butler. Tommy had gained a name for himself as the detective who led the Great Train Robbery investigation. He lived locally to Hammersmith and was unmarried. Another reason he was suspected was that he was a detective and he would know more than anyone how to deceive and how to evade detection. However, to date, no one has ever been arrested and charged with the Hammersmith nude murders as Jack the Stripper. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu.